Morning, everyone. Once again, thanks for being here. This morning we're continuing in Colossians chapter 3, moving right along. And we're going to be ending this section of the ethics of, the, of God's new community. And remember, as we speak about this information, this, these teachings, and I think it's critically significant to remember why the Bible, and especially the apostles who write the epistles, why they give so much time and energy to instructing believers how to live. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, go here, don't go there. It's filled with instruction. And the reason is, their purpose is to create in us a motivation and then the context of how to fulfill that motivation. Our motivation is this. We have been saved for one reason, only one reason, to fulfill God's creative mandate in Genesis 1.26. That's why you're here. We are not here for any other reason other than to be the earthly image of the heavenly community. That's why we are here. And so that being the only reason God has sent His Son, actually created, and then sent His Son to save us, then it is centrally significant that we understand what that community on earth is to look like and how we are to relate to one another. So remember, these are not rules that we have to follow in order to get somewhere or to obtain something. But these are signposts, instructions, commands that are given to us so that we, having been motivated by the love of God in order to manifest or image the love of God on earth, will take up these commands and gladly pursue them and embrace them, knowing that these are the ways that God is image in our lives. This is what the commands of the New Testament are all about. And this is why we have to make sure that we anchor anything and everything we talk about, we learn, we believe, within the context of God's original purpose. And so this morning we come to verses 11 to 14. I'm sorry, 17, 14 to 17, sorry. And in this section, as we will see, Paul comes to a crescendo. He comes to the zenith. This is the top point. Because by doing what he says in our section today, in this passage today, this is the way to image God. This is the central issue that God is after in our lives. That we will be on earth, the display of the most unique and magnificent revelation that there is about God. 
And that is this, that God is one in being, but three in persons. And each divine, distinct divine person of God is fully equal to each other person of God. And that the three persons of God relate to one another through lovingly loving roles within this community. And they relate through love in such a way <clears throat> that God is said to be one. Remember Deuteronomy 6.4, which you'll see in your notes a little further on. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is one. And that word means one of uniqueness, one of a kind. And it also is meaning it is one, a collection in unity. And so this is our purpose. This is the reason why God has saved us. So let's look at the text this morning. Father, we just pray this morning as we've already been praying, as we study your word, the Holy Spirit who hovered over this creation. Father, that you will, by your Spirit, be manifesting and hovering and working and moving in our hearts. And Father, as we read your Word, as we listen to your Word, as we are instructed by you, Father, would you bring about a greater function and reality of this Word in our lives so that clearly and truly the world will look at us and the way we relate to one another and live as a community and be as startled and amazed as they were when they saw and heard Jesus himself upon the earth. Their mouths fell open. They had never heard anything like that. They had never seen anything like that. Father, may that be the reaction of the world today as they see us your church, the body of Christ, make it so in a great and an increasing way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So verses 14 to 17. And above all of these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Verse 14, and above all of these put on love. So here it is. Above everything that I have said, everything that I have said, Paul says, make sure that we are putting on love. You remember that this is the heart of the instruction that Paul is giving. This is the heart of the revelation of Christ in us. This is the heart of who God is, putting on love. Now you notice he says, put on love. We have the love of God within us. But the love of God, which now dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been shed abroad in our hearts. Remember 
Romans 5, 5. That love of God now must be cooperated with. We must pursue it. We must walk with it. We must do certain things hand in hand with the Holy Spirit so that the love that God has given to us and has deposited into our hearts will become a living and flowing reality in our lives so that we are experiencing that love and the effects of that love in our bodies and our minds and our thoughts and our deeds more and more every day and that others will begin to see more and more the effect of that love so they also will be affected by the love of God in us. Remember in verses 3 to 10, Paul has already told them, put to death the former earthly deeds of sin. Remember, put to death sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death your anger, your wrath, your malice, your slander. Put to death the obscene talk from your mouth. Put to death lying. Stop this. He says, stop it. You know, occasionally I get in the office, someone or groups of people, who are walking in activities of sin, and they'll tell me, I just find I can't stop it. And I tell them that if you really mean I cannot stop it, then what you are telling me is that you are not saved and the Holy Spirit does not live. Oh, no, no, I'm saved. If you are saved, you can stop it. Amen? Can we get that in our hearts and minds? Oh, it's hard. The hardness, the difficulty, the barriers, that's not the point. The point in us, we have the power to overcome any and every obstacle, difficulty, temptation, whatsoever, at any time, all the time. Why? Because we have the power of God in us by the Spirit. So can you stop these activities? Can we do it? The question is never, can we, right, Mike? It's what? Will we? Will we stop it? So let's let's start looking at our lives of sin, those issues in us that we think are controlling us. If we're saved brothers and sisters in Christ, we are being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And if you are being controlled by sin, you are not of God because that controlling has been broken at the cross. Now we are sinning because we are cooperating willingly, not being made unwilling servants of sin. Make make sure we get this in our hearts because this is the key to walking in independence of sin. And Satan wants us to think that we cannot do anything else but this. In verses 11 to 13, he has told them to put on the characteristics of Christ, put away that, these sinful activities, and put on in their place compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Put this on. Why? Because this is the way Jesus loves us. And what is all this about what is all this kindness and goodness and patience and forbearing and forgiving where does it come from what is the source of all of these characteristics well verse 14 tells us above all these above all of these all of the ability to put off and all of the characteristics of christ that we see in verses 11 to 13 where do they all come from above all these put on love 
Now, why does he emphasize love? Why is love the most significant central characteristic that we are to put on? Why is that? Well, what does 1 John 4, 8 tell us? God is love. That's why. You see, as God's image bearers, we are the ones and the only ones on earth who can image the love of God the way God loves within himself among the three persons of the Trinity. You see, love describes the way the persons of God relate to one another through their roles. So when the Bible says God's love, Gordon, what is it talking about? It's not talking essentially about God's love for me. It's essentially talking about the love that exists within God among the three persons of the Godhead. And that very love that exists among the three persons of God has now been given to us and been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We are now partakers, participators, fellowshipping within the same and by the same love that God has within himself among the three persons of the Trinity. We are now the recipients of that same love, and we are now to be functioning relationally through our roles and how we, well, relationally, how we relate to one another with the same love that God relates within himself. That's the love of God. You know, if we ask Christians the love of God, what does it mean? It typically comes out this, God loves me. It's about me. We put the emphasis primarily and initially on ourselves, where the emphasis primarily and initially should be put where? Within God. It's God's kind of love. Certainly, we are the recipients of it. But we are the recipients of it for a purpose, in order to be the display of that love within this community of the church. You see, love is the central character of God which flows, from which flows all this other. So anytime you talk about compassion and kindness and forbearance and forgiveness, all of those are characteristics of one character issue, love. In order for the church to fulfill its reason for existence, its reason for existence, in order for you and for me to fulfill the reason God saved us through the death of his Son, in order to be God's image bearers on earth, we must put on God's kind of love in our lives. What does 1 John, again, 4.11 say? It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, if he has deposited within us the very same love that he experiences and is involved with um, in himself among the three persons, if he so loved us, we ought also what? to love one another. You see, by putting on love, the church will then clearly, consistently, and compellingly image the unity and the equality among the three persons of God who love one another and who relate to one another through the individual roles. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, put on love. Put on love. And we have to be very careful about this because what happens in our lives, and I think it happens in all of us, I know I have to deal with it, 
We have to be careful not to allow the understanding and the definition and the function of what the Bible calls love to be in any way manipulated or influenced by what the world says is love. We have to make sure that we are maintaining the definition and the distinction of biblical love as opposed to humanity or natural love. These two loves are diametrically opposed. The world of the fleshly love is driven by one issue, self. It's for me, about me, etc., and, you know, and from me. It's a self-promoting love. That's the love of the world. But the love of God is radically different. It is not driven on self. It is outward going and giving and ministering. So these two loves are diametrically opposed. We have to be careful not to allow them to meld together. And this is difficult. It's difficult for me, and I'm sure it may be difficult for some of you. See, this means that putting on love means that we will love one another in the very same way that Jesus has loved us, which is, we've heard that many times. And how has Jesus loved us? Jesus has loved us the way the Father has loved him. A couple of scriptures here. John 15, 9. Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, in the same way, this is incredible, in the same way, Lester, in the same way, that the Father has loved me. Now, how has the Father loved the Son? How has God the Father loved God the Son? I have loved you. The Father, then he prays, Father, I desire that they may, I should have put 17 there, 1724, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So what is the central activity of the glory of God? It is the activity of the love of God which displays the unity and the equality within God. That's what God is seeking to display about himself. And it can only be displayed as we love one another. Not just love one another in a general sense, but love one another with the same kind of relational love through roles that God within himself loves among the three persons of the Trinity. He says, I made known to them your name. Jesus is saying, Father, I made your name known to them. What does that mean, your name? Your character, your inner person. I made your character known to them. And what is the character of God? God is love. And I'm going to continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what do we see here? Loving one another with God's relational love is the only way the love that exists within the Godhead among the three persons of God will be imaged on earth. So what is our motive? What is our motive? We must be clear that our basic motive in everything we do and all that we are and all of our thoughts, words, and deeds is to properly, clearly, compellingly, consistently, biblically, truthfully be God's image bearers. That must be our motive. Why? Because that pleases God. Because that brings glory to God. 
And we say, and, and it's not wrong, we're here to glorify God. Well, that's great. But how in the world are we to glorify God? Paul is telling them specifically, this is how you glorify God. By on the earth being that relational community that images the heavenly community. That's about the glory of God. And what is the central characteristic and activity and the atmosphere in which that community is to exist and function? What is it? We love one another within the context and by the same love that is within God himself. What does this love do? It, which, binds, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Putting on love produces perfect harmony. Putting on love produces perfect harmony. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Remember, Paul has just given the church the great instruction concerning the, the church. He's prayed a couple of times, and he's told them what the church is all about. And having given that, then he starts chapter 4 this way. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, I exhort you. He says, I exhort you, urge you, that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to with which you have been called. Remember, we saw that same prayer in Colossians 1.10 and 9 and 10. How to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another. How? In love. Eager to maintain, not to produce the unity. The unity in us is already being produced and set in us by the Spirit. If we had the Holy Spirit, we are a people of unity. But maintaining and manifesting the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is our calling. This is our purpose in life. You see, our purpose in life is not to be doing ministry. Our purpose in life is to be living ministry. And as we live the ministry of the presence and the reality of God, then we will do the ministry of God. Too often we're too ready to do the ministry of God, to get out there and do this and do that and say that and do the other, without first being the ministry of God. We must first and foremost be the ministry of God, be living this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as we are living the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the doing of it <coughs> will be produced as a seed produces fruit if the seed is alive. So let's make sure that our priorities are correct and in adjusted right. Alpha is a great ministry. It's a wonderful ministry. But that's not what the church is all about. The church is all about first living the ministry among ourselves so that ministries such as Alpha and Royal Rangers and all of these other extensions of what we do can be produced and manifested in a way that clearly identifies us as a people of God. Perfect harmony is to be the description of all the relationships within the church. That means this, that although there will be differences of opinion, the goal is not the opinion, but the goal is what? Harmony. You see, I have opinions that will differ with you. We will have differing, differing opinions. Can you imagine that you would not hold the same opinions that I hold? I mean, to me, it's ridiculous you don't. But, but you know, I, I, have to, I have to forbear with you. 
and hope that one day as you mature in Christ, you will come to the right place of understanding. <laughs> We're going to have radical differences of opinion. Gene and I were raised in the 1950s. Bill Treby was raised in the 50s. We come from an era, Mike and Betty were raised, you know, basically in the 50s. We come from an era, era that is different than those of you who have been raised in maybe the 70s or 80s or even 90s. It was a different world back then. Isn't that right? It really was different. And so I find myself clashing with those believers who have come out of a different world. A different world. I mean, Descant, when did you grow up? In the 70s and 80s. It was a different world. Faxton, when did you grow up? In the 80s. A different world. And I'm going to hold opinions that were inculcated in me and I'm going to hold ways of doing things and understandings that were produced and made into me that are going to be different than yours. And what I have to be careful of, because I hold my issues passionately. Some of you may have heard that. I have to be careful, first of all, that they're biblical, as best I understand that. I have to hold them passionately. I'm supposed to, and you're supposed to hold your biblical opinions, what? Passionately. If you don't hold them passionately, Trish, there ain't no good. But I have to hold them very carefully, allowing the Holy Spirit to undo my fingers that are wrapped around this opinion or this way and to let it go if that's not His will. Otherwise, He's going to have to start breaking my fingers to get me loose. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll let it go harmony. And I have to be careful. I say I because I really mean I. I have to be careful to be able to share with you and you share with me divergent opinions. We're not talking about something that is clearly stated and mandated by Scripture. Do we get that? I have to be careful about this. And if the love of God is functioning in me and in us the right way, then Steve Zeringer and I can have opposite opinions in a particular way. Let's say Steve believes passionately in homeschooling. That's the only thing on earth that Steve believes about schooling. And I believe passionately to the opposite that it should be public school. And I, okay, fine. Which one of us is correct biblically? Which one? Which one? Well, neither and both. Well, neither and both. Because it depends, first of all, primarily how I see the Word and how the Holy Spirit has hopefully led me. Or I could be off on that. But within that, we clash on this in a, in a, in a passionate way. But brother, look, give me a hand. This is how we're to walk. I'm freezing. Oh, man, thank you. Your hands are warm. I like you. Look, we, this is the way we're to walk. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't allow these things to begin to separate us. Man, I don't want to get around Peter because he doesn't believe we should drink. Man, he says that. Man, I don't want to get around you because you believe you can have a drink. Man. And all of a sudden, the harmony, the unity of the church goes out the window. Isn't it interesting that God has done this? Because let us ask this question. How many of us 
has God decided to walk with us in harmony? And yet, how many of us have the right opinion in everything and in anything in relation to God? How many of us do? None of us had the right opinion. None of us. None of us. And yet, this God of ours chooses to continually be humble and loving and forbearing and kind and gentle when there is not one opinion that I hold that is according to his perfect way. And if that can be done and is being done by God to me, what's wrong among us? We're getting ourselves too much in the picture and we're not seeing who God really is in me. Harmony. Does that mean I throw away my opinions? Well, I won't think that way anymore, Frank. No, it doesn't. But it certainly does mean that it should never allow contention and disagreement, disagreement, dis, you know, that bad stuff. Discord. See, this is what Jesus was emphasizing in John 15, 12. Love one another as I have loved you. Has, did any man walk with a bunch of ding-dong, boneheaded whatevers and yet love them through it all? And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. See, this perfect harmony, which is being produced by putting on love, loving, putting on love, producing perfect harmony, this perfect harmony that is being produced through putting on love occurs as we how? How do we do it? We allow, we let the work of Christ's peace rule in our hearts. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. I don't get it. How many of you can explain this to me clearly and perfectly? I don't get it. I don't get this. I get minuscule of this. He says, let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, what, and the peace of God, will guard, rule, garrison, fortify your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, it will guard and garrison you against all attempts by the world, your flesh, and Satan to disrupt this love and to begin to pollute it. What is this peace of Christ? What is this? What is this peace of Christ? First, it is the peace that has come to us in our forgiveness at the cross. What does Romans 5.1 say? Therefore, having been justified by God. First stop. What does justification mean? If I were to ask you, give me just a simple five-word or whatever definition of justification, can you do it? If you cannot do it, you need to make sure you can do it. Justification is God's declaration because of the cross. God has declared us no longer to be guilty of sin. We are no longer guilty. It is the judge saying, not guilty. It's, it, what do you call it, a forensic definition? What is that, a legal definition? Is that what that term means, forensic? It's a forensic definition. 
It doesn't mean you never committed sin. It doesn't mean you're innocent. It simply means that the sin, the guilt, has been placed on another and has been paid for. So that's the first piece. First of all, the war is over. The war. We were at war with God. Remember, while we were enemies, remember in Romans 5, verse 10, we were enemies. We were at war with God. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the things when he said, it is finished, what was finished? One of the things that was finished is the warfare between God and our, his people is what? Over. Peace has been declared in the death of Christ. Peace. So you see, my guilt, my burden of sin, my fear of condemnation is over, is over. He said, let this peace of Christ rule, guard, keep, keep you going, protect you, move you along. Let this happen in your life. Let it. What is he saying? Let it. In other words, cooperate, cooperate with it. You can disallow it. Well, someone stole my peace the other day when he said this. You wrong. Nobody, not even Satan and all of his minions, can steal your peace. You can give it away, but nobody can steal it. Amen? Nobody can steal it. It's not only that peace, that war is over. But it's also the peace that Jesus gives to us. Remember, he said, John 14, 27, he said, my peace I give to you. What peace is this? The peace that exists within God among the three persons of the Trinity. God is at eternal, complete, comprehensive peace within himself about everything about himself. God is the only location of peace. There is peace nowhere else. And Jesus says, this is the peace that I'm giving to you. I'm giving to you the very peace that exists within the Godhead that I experience with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is my peace. I'm giving it to you. This is the peace. So now what? We are to let, allow this peace of Christ rule in our hearts so that we will live in harmony with one another. So therefore, that means that there should be no unpeaceful activity within the church no matter what the occasion. Are you at peace with every single other brother and sister in Christ? If not, then you need to go to God and confess that sin and begin to let, cooperate, allow that peace to work in you. Don't wait for the feeling of it. You already have it in you, Donnie. You now need to begin to drink from the well of that which you already have. Because if we don't do it this way, the harmony is disrupted, and the love is disfigured, and it no longer is God's kind of love where there is contention and debate and, and selfishness, et cetera, in the church, there is no peace. And we are marring the image of Christ himself. How many of you have ever owned a brand new automobile or truck? And are you like Gene is? 
Jean will park as far away from others as she can so as not to get her car scratched. And so here's your brand new car. You paid, let's say, $80,000. Let's be, you know, fancy about this. This is, a bit, this is really a big fancy car, Mike. And you're out there, and Cliff Vogel passes and scratches it down the side. How many of us would be a little upset? And yet, when we don't live at peace with one another, this is what we're doing to the image of God and much, much more. You see, we're more concerned with our cars getting scratched than the image of Christ being scratched. He says, be thankful. The attitude, the attitude in this whole issue of love is thankfulness. <clears throat> and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, do you see it? Let, let, let. Let the love producing harmony. Let the peace. And now let the word of God. You see the progression here. In order for us to let love's peace rule in our hearts, we must let the Word of God rule in our hearts. Do you see what, where it's going? It goes down to the very basic way of our ability and our knowledge and our motive to be God's image-bearing people. We must be anchored in and infused by and neutrified by, fed by the Word of God. This must happen. And where you see weaknesses in these areas, very often, not maybe all the time, but often the weakness is because of a weakness in the Word. I meet with people all the time. I'm not going to raise my, ask you to raise your hand, but I've probably met with more than half of you. I've had meetings with more than half of you. If I ask and raise hands, probably only a few of you would be able to raise your hand that you haven't been in the office. Man, what have you all been doing? So, and, and so when I begin to ask questions, and some of you will recognize this, you're having a difficulty with your wife and you're not getting along or there's contention here. Or you're, I ask what question? How are you doing in your study of the Word? And I've already written down the answer for people. And when they say, well, I'm not really, I'll show them what the answer is. How do you know that? Because weakness in the Word produces weakness in the living. We must be ever-increasing in the Word of God. We must be. Because if we're not, we're continually scratching up God's image. We must be increasing in the Word of God and in prayer. You know me. You know what I'm going to ask you. If you have to come to the office one day and deal with some issues that are going on in your life, be ready to be asked that. Also, if there are issues going on in your life and back and forth, first of all, before you come in, why don't you inundate yourself with the Word of God for several weeks and let that Word of God cleanse you and transform your mind, remembering Romans 12, 1 and 2. And let it transform and renew your mind. And you'll probably call and say, hey, look, brother, I don't need to come in. God has done a work in me through the Word and through prayer. Verse 17, and whatever you do, In word or do you do everything in the name of the Lord? How many of you, did you see those two words that Paul used? 
What two exclusive comprehensive words does he use? A comprehensive words does he use? What? Whatever and what? Everything. Now, how much is in whatever and everything? I mean, how much is left out? See, Paul is worse than we are sometimes, or worse than I have been accused of. <laughs> whatever. And in everything. Everything. Well, does that exclude because you were treated this way, or you forgot to do that, or they did that, or they said that, or they didn't disagree with that, or the, the preacher said that. It means how much? Everything. You see, we don't, we don't look at the word this way. We, we, we begin to think, well, I don't really, I have, whatever you do, word or deed, do what? He doesn't just say do it, he just makes sure. One more time, whatever you do in word and deed, then Paul stops. Make sure I got this, make sure you do what? Everything. Do everything. Do everything what? In the name of the Lord. By the character of God's love. The name meaning character. As they put on love, as they are letting the peace of Christ rule, by putting on the word of Christ, they are going to fulfill this command. This command cannot be fulfilled. It is absolutely impossible to do without the verses before it. Love producing harmony by let what? Letting what? The peace of Christ rule in you, being an inundated, inundated by the word, it will produce this kind of life. And in doing so, we're going to be fulfilling God's design for us. Now let me finish with this as one addendum. I don't know whether it's in your notes. As you look back over these verses in chapter 3, have we noticed Paul has used clothing terminology, put on, put off? Have we noticed that? Clothe yourself. Have we seen that? Paul is using clothing terminology to explain our response to God's redemptive work. This is not our what we do to get God to redeem us. This is what we are to do in response, in cooperation with God, having saved us, living in us, and now working in us, and we are working with Him. How many of you have ever been to a clothing store and had to have clothes, you know, adjusted on you? So you cooperate with the haberdasher. Isn't that right? Don't you do that? I mean, they put the suit on, put you on, stand up here, do this, or whatever it is. We cooperate. We must take off the old thing that we came in with, and when we're going to buy something new, we put the new thing on. And, and what does the tailor do? He starts adjusting and pulling in, and he, I'm going to do this and, and shorten the sleeves. That's what he does. This is what God is doing. God clothed them. Well, where does this come from? Listen. Genesis 3, 21, you remember after the fall? And Yahweh God made Adam and for Adam and his wife garments, garments of skin. You see, God clothed them. He put on them the clothes of sacrifice so that they could continue to walk with him in a fellowship until the Lamb of God would clothe them with the permanent righteous garments of Christ. So by slaying the animal in 321, God is literally taking off them their unrighteous garments and putting on them the righteousness of Christ. And so when Paul is talking to the church about this, this is the fulfillment of what God began to do in Genesis throughout the Old Testament in type and in shadow, a temporary 
clothing, the sacrificial system, you remember the religious activities, all of those were the temporary clothing. But now that Christ has come, now God gives to us our permanent righteous wardrobe. Amen? That's what Paul is saying. Put this on because you don't need any of the temporary anymore. Take off all the old clothes of the earthly. Take off all the old clothes of the old religious activities which spoke about the fulfillment coming in Colossians 2.17. He is, Christ is a fulfillment. Remember that. He sums it up. And put on these new clothes of permanent righteousness in Christ. See you next week.